Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Introducing himself to the Gustavus community, Dr. Rodney A. Carruthers II, this academic year's Bruce Gray postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Religion, called our attention to a poem he had recently come across. Titled The Calf Path and written by Sam Foss, it reads in part, For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. If we can judge a person by the poetry they commend, then Dr. Carruthers is surely someone dedicated to fresh inquiry and learning rather than simply settling for what we already know. Professor Carruthers earned his PhD from the University of Michigan Ann Armour in 2019 with a focus on Second Temple Judaism and New Testament studies. Specifically, as he described it, his scholarship, quote, focuses on education and writing techniques during the Greco-Roman era, intertextual relationships between Jewish and Christian literature, comparative religion, and the use of magic in antiquity, all of which sounds fascinating to me, especially that magic part. More on that later. Already a published scholar at work on receiving his PhD dissertation and revising his PhD dissertation for publication, Rodney is also no stranger to the classroom, having taught previously at several institutions and recently concluded a course on the New Testament at Gustavus. As you will hear, his story and work are both quite interesting, and it's my pleasure to speak with him on the pack on the podcast. And so welcome, Rodney. It's great to have you uh, both on the podcast and at Gustavus. It's absolutely my Pleasure, Greg, and I'm I'm glad to have a chance to interact with you. Likewise, um, I'm, I'm, we have actually not met in person, as is sometimes the case with people I'm uh, podcasting with. So look forward to doing that. But but uh, the pleasure is mine as well. And um, as we were discussing shortly before we started recording, I'll let listeners know uh, I'm recording from uh, the condominium my wife and I inhabit in downtown Minneapolis, and our neighbors are remodeling starting today. Uh, we're happy for them, but uh, listeners may hear some pounding and trilling and God knows what else, uh, and there's no way for me to avoid it. I tried going into a closet, and you, know, you still hear it, so bear with us. Um, Anyway, so, um, and you're now at, at your home in Mankato, you said, how uh, are you you're teaching J term, January term right now? That's correct. I, I am teaching J term. It's been a great experience so far. We're in our second week and uh, it's been good. Monday through Friday, the students have been great teaching uh, religion 210, New Testament. Oh, so okay. Is that, is, that, is that the same course you taught in the fall too or not? That is the same course. Okay. And, and today was the first day that I actually taught at home because of the blizzard warning. So oh, yeah. the other time I was at the campus teaching from one of the classrooms, just over video still. But today we did the video and I and again, they, they they're doing a good job. OK, that's good to know. The. Um uh, yeah, I forgot about the, you know, I forgot about this blizzard. So did, I'm looking out our window here, downtown Minneapolis, and um, basically nothing. I mean, nothing that wasn't already here. We got very little snow. Did you, you did you get shovelable snow there? It was, and they have, uh, they are actually clearing it pretty well. And it, most okay. of it looks like it's melted. Okay, good. Uh, that's great. Well, yeah, and uh, I'm glad things are going well and that you're uh, safe. It's interesting how... COVID, interesting and challenging how COVID has impacted our 
are teaching. Were you already teaching online or in hybrid form in the, in the spring elsewhere? Well, in well back uh, spring of 2020, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, at, at, when I was teaching at Ashland Theological Seminary, I was teaching both New Testament and biblical interpretation. And Greg, we before COVID hit, so it was something of a preparation before all of uh, everything changed. I was teaching in the metro Detroit area. Ashland Theological Seminary is located in Ashland, Ohio, but it also has a satellite campus in Michigan. So okay. I was teaching at the Michigan campus, but I was also teaching the Cleveland campus remote over video. So this was before COVID hit. So it actually got me somewhat prepared to teach over video because I was teaching the group that was in front of me physically, but I also had the Cleveland group uh, on video. So I was doing both simultaneously. And then there were times that I went down to Cleveland as well. So it got, actually got me ready to teach over video, which I've been doing here at Gustavus starting in the fall when I don't know if you knew this um, or if our listeners knew this. Uh, this was the first time that Religion 210 New Testament has been taught at Gustavus. Oh, wow. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. So the the chair of the department, Casey Elledge, uh, gave me the, the honor and the opportunity to teach this for the first time at Gustavus. I know they already had a course on the Bible that normally taught the Hebrew Bible Old Testament and included the New Testament. So this was the first time that we had a chance to teach New Testament as a standalone course. So, wow. I, so I did that in the fall and I taught it over video. The students uh, did a, an excellent job. It was a great experience. And now, yes, I'm doing that for the J-term. Okay. Well, so a couple of things. I mean, one, you, that, that experience, yeah, that, that last spring, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> has come in handy, obviously. Absolutely. I had never taught online and I've only, I've been only online since, uh, since last, I guess, last, like mid, mid March. Um, and it hasn't been, I mean, it's been pretty, it's gone pretty well. I mean, I don't, perhaps you, you do this too. I mean, mostly, you know, I do some lecturing, but mostly it's I try to get the students engaged in discussion or what I call workouts with the material. Maybe that's more a humanities model. But in any case, it, it hasn't been as terrifying or as um, <laughs> or as quite as disruptive to learning as I was as I was fearing. And then I'm surprised I did not know that about the New Testament having not been taught before at Gustavus, uh, except as it was folded into uh, that course that you mentioned. So is this a course that you were able to develop or had someone already developed it for you or for whoever was going to be the Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Gray fellow? I did have the opportunity to design the course uh, the way that I wanted to. Great. And, um, you know, basically I've been teaching New Testament and I'm sure we'll talk about this to some degree as well, but I've been teaching New Testament since somewhere around 2004. So okay. I've had a chance to work through the kind of presentation that I like to do, uh, both for graduate and undergraduates. And I had just finished teaching it at Ashland. So coming here, I basically tweaked the course to a certain degree, more so for undergraduate students. But again, the good part was because I was teaching over video, and we actually were using Zoom video there as well, 
it gave me some new ideas to add into the course because of the video element. Instead That's of great. what you were alluding to, where you always have the, the students in front of you. Right. Oh, that's excellent. That's exciting. And yeah, we do, I do want to hear more about the course. Um, you're reminding me too that um, I took I, as an undergraduate. Well, maybe it was, I can't remember if it was a, as an undergraduate or graduate student. Now, I think it, I think it was as an undergraduate at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, where I did my BA and MA. But I uh, took a course offered uh, by by an English professor on the Bible which I absolutely love. The only course I've ever taken on the Bible and which actually came in handy subsequently when I was doing some work on the language and ideology of 19th century um, white working men in this country whose language was just saturated with religious illusions. And, you know, I couldn't, I mean, without that course, I would have been, been unaware of, of, of a lot of it. In any case, so that sounds good. Uh, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad things are going well. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You're, you're a fellow Midwesterner, it sounds like, like me. So would you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was born and raised in uh, well, born in Detroit, Michigan, and more so raised in a suburb of Detroit, South Southfield and Oak Park. So I spent my, interestingly enough, I spent my school days in Michigan. So uh, going through, I would say, from elementary to probably middle school, I would be, I would live in Michigan. And then my mother's side of the family was from Hueytown, Alabama, a small city near Birmingham, Alabama, and I would spend my summers there. So I got an interesting mix of Northern life and Southern life. So it was very intriguing for me to to live in Alabama for the summer months, learn some of the culture, of course, stay with my family there. But then when I came back to Michigan, I had something of a Southern draw. (laughs) <laughs> because, uh, because of being around my family and just being integrated into the life and culture there. So That's so was, interesting. It was it was always somewhat uh, somewhat comical when I look back on it. Maybe not so much so when I was in school. Uh, that my friends got a kick out of how I spoke. <laughs> That's great. That's so interesting. I've been I've been to both my wife and I've been to Birmingham. Well, she's been more often than I have, but I've been to Birmingham. And then um, again, as I was mentioning, as I was mentioning before we started recording, I, I I happen to love Detroit. I remember my very first trip to Detroit as a as a little kid with my parents. And then um, just a couple of years ago, my wife and I went back because good friends of her sister, my wife's sister and her husband, uh, grew up in that area. And actually one of them is an architect whose company is based there and has been really involved in uh, a lot of the revitalization downtown. And so, God, it was just fascinating. I just loved it. Loved the history of it, um, the whole the whole city. And as a labor historian, too, of course, that's mm. what's I like about Detroit. <laughs> there it is. Um, so your, your mom, tell us a little bit about your mom. She has an interesting background as well. Very fascinating background, uh, both both of my parents, uh, to be honest with you. But for my mother, she, again, coming from from Alabama, uh, made her way to the north. And <clears throat> I grew up in the church. So I grew up going to church. Uh, she was a member of a prominent Baptist church in Metro Detroit. Um, and... Interestingly enough, Greg, when I started seminary, she again, she was already active in the church. She had been a Bible 
school teacher, uh, active in the choir. So she had a very active church life growing up. And, and I'll go back for just a moment. Sure. In, in Alabama, where she grew up, uh, her father and mother were founding members of a Baptist church. So her father was a deacon and her whole family was, was all a part of that church. We used to just walk to it. So <laughs> we could walk from... Uh, my grandparents' house to the church. So she had a very strong church background. My father did as well. Oh, was your, was, your father, was your father a pastor also? He was not a pastor. He grew up in Ecorse, Michigan, another city around Metro Detroit. Um, so his, he and his mother, his father, and his, uh, his brothers, they were a part of a Baptist church as well, too. So okay. both, of, both of them had a, a church background. Um, but for my mother, the way that she ended up where she is now, uh, I started seminary right after college. And she, I would have discussions with my parents about the Bible and some of the things that I was learning. And she came and sat in on one of the seminary classes. And it was the course was biblical hermeneutics. And she enjoyed it. And she just started going, eventually enrolled into seminary, took off. Uh, Greg, she did better than I did. <laughs> she, I mean, she really honed in on her study. Uh, she studied, she did a Master of Divinity, uh, but had no intentions of being a pastor. Huh. She just had a strong interest in uh, her belief in God and wanting to study the faith. So she focused on... Christian theology and the history of theology. She did uh, biblical languages as well, particularly Greek. Um, and she really took a strong interest in spiritual discipline. So she's kind of, she has a really broad uh, training base for what she brings to her study. And after seminary, she went on to get a doctor of ministry at, and she did her master of divinity same school I did, Ashland Theological Seminary. Then she did her Doctor of Ministry at Ecumenical Theological Seminary, another seminary based in Metro Detroit, actually based in Detroit. So she did the Doctor of Ministry and focused on, on uh, counseling and asked questions about the life uh, of the church, life of uh, church congregations. And just before she finished, she, no, actually, I think right after she finished, she joined an AME church and over, over a course of time, maybe a few years, uh, they had two or three pastors and then the denomination asked her to become the, or actually appointed her as the pastor of the church. That's so amazing. Had, yeah, she had a very, very interesting path, had never talked about being a pastor, but uh, there's a quote that I remember um, when I started seminary. It was something about um, God doesn't always call the prepared, but hmm. he will prepare the called. 
<laughs> I think it fits her perfectly. That's excellent. Yeah, and I love. I always love um, stories like that. Uh, you know, where the path isn't necessarily just straight, and uh, you're already well well worn. To come back to the the poet, yeah. the poem you yeah. commended, that is yeah. really neat. And and of course, the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, has such a long storied history. Uh, uh, incredible. What what line of work is your dad in, or was he in? If he's retired. He is retired now. He he had a long and distinguished career. My father, uh, in addition to his his uh, interest in the faith, he uh, started off, of course, in Ecorse, Michigan. He went to the military, so he went. He became a Marine mm-hmm. and uh, had a actually served in Vietnam. So he he went from high school into the military, was distinguished as a Marine. Then he went on to have a 38-year 30, career uh, in, at, with the Internal Revenue Service. So mm-hmm. he climbed the ranks uh, coming out of uh, being a Marine and had a, a great career, uh, retired. And actually, in the midst of his career, Again, as we were talking before uh, our segment here, he went on to get his master's degree at, um, I believe it's the University of Phoenix. He did his undergrad at Wayne State, then a master's degree at the University of Phoenix, and then he went on to get his doctorate of business administration at Baker College in Michigan. So he now teaches business at Baker College. So it's fascinating to, as you were asking me this, it's fascinating to look at the path uh, that my parents have taken and the impact that it's had on me. Again, right. none of this was just immediately planned. It's just an interesting yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I was li- literally just going to comment, and if you want to say more about that, the impact on you. Uh, I mean... In some, first of all, you're, I, I think I'd be a little intimidated having, having if I were you, having your mom, my mom, you know, right? There. <laughs> Especially if she's out, out studying me. And um, but wow, what 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 incredible examples uh, and, and role models it sounds like. Yeah, Absolutely. did they you? Were, so, go ahead. They were. I'll just say this: in addition to what they have applied themselves to, both of them, and accomplished. Uh, as good as they are in terms of their respective careers and, and their academics, what impacted me most was the kind of people that they are. Greg, mm. you're talking about, and I'm not saying this because they're my parents, but uh, they they are two of the most genuine and hardworking people that I know. Yeah. So, yeah, they're... Uh, you know, again, a, a, another quote I'm sure people have heard of, uh, people don't always care about how much you know, but they they care about. Well, no, I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> people don't yeah. always care about how, uh, uh, care about uh, what you know, but they want to know how much you care. I think it's exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they they fall in that kind of category. Yeah, no, I can I can relate to that. Um, and again, I feel I'm not just saying this because my parents were my parents, but I feel the same way about my parents, both of whom have. Uh, uh, passed on, but I feel, and I know my brother feels the same way too. And I learned that um, my dad didn't go to college; was a World War II vet, and then became a hairdresser. And my mom went to a two-year teacher college and taught for a while. And she'd grown up on a farm. My dad grew up in in Chicago, mm-hmm. 
okay. uh, born here, but in a Greek immigrant family. But that, um, yeah, I, that is that is profoundly important, you know. And you sometimes don't realize it until you get older. But that example of my parents, like your parents, I mean, the caring, the genuine caring. It's, you're lucky, right? I feel lucky. I feel so fortunate. To have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not that everything, I'm, you know, I'm sure, not that, every, not that we didn't have our disagreements and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a brat at times, but, uh, but looking back at it, I mean, that is a, that's a, and also the hard work, the yes. work ethic, right? Yes. That, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Profoundly important. Um, yeah. I'd like to meet both your parents one day. I, I mentioned before we started recording, I'd come across a, a bit about your mom online and she sounds, but both parents sound, sound fascinating. So let, let's, let's back up a bit. You, you, um, you went to Oakland university and, and majored in psychology. Um, let's start there. What, what led you into psych? Yeah, if anything led you in. Yeah, like like most, uh, Greg, I, I would imagine, like most, when you're at a young age coming out of high school, you have some people that are maybe exceptional in terms of knowing what they want to do. I came out of high school, and and hopefully this is encouraging for someone. I came out of high school. I was I was I did well. I did okay in high school, but I for my time was looking at sports. I was interested in sports. And then I ended up going before I got to Oakland University. What's, what's not on my, what's not on my CV is I went to the University of Alabama first. Oh, so I went to the University of Alabama. Again, I'd spent time in Alabama growing up, went to the University of Alabama first, um, did okay, spent a year and I switched in high school. I was actually studying architectural design. Mm, I love architecture. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, I was studying architectural design. That's what I did in high school, the measurements and blueprints and electrical. Yeah. My mother's father, my grandfather, used to build houses. Huh. So I had a slight interest uh, coming from that little bit of experience that I had with him. Uh, so at the University of Alabama, I was enrolled in the major for architectural design, but then I started having something of a spiritual awakening. Hmm. And out of nowhere, much to my counselor's chagrin, <laughs> went and said, I'd like to study psychology. <laughs> because for me, that was the closest thing to helping people. And I can remember, I don't remember a lot, Greg, from, from back then, but I can remember that moment. The counselor's name was Miss Black, and I was sitting in her office, the University of, of uh, Alabama, and when I said that to her, she looked at me and said, why? <laughs> she said, do you realize how much money you can make as a, as a person who does architecture? As an architect. <laughs> and, and she and I said, I want to help people. It's not uh. about how much money I make. It, I want to help people. That's what eighteen gets you. Okay, <laughs> no, that's a great. That's a great. That's a great story. I love that, and that's the kind of. And I think it is encouraging for. It should be. I hope it is. I, th I think it is. I know it is for some. Um, to students, prospective students, high school students, and parents, right? You don't have to have it all figured out. 
right? Exactly. Okay, exactly. you don't have to. Yeah. So, I, I, so I ended up doing, uh, I switched to psychology there, came to Oakland University. I eventually continued down the route of psychology. But then my final class, and I had a high interest in it because it was helping me out emotionally, a lot of uh, self uh, introspection uh, through learning about psychology. Yes. But my last class at Oakland University was with a professor named Charles Maybe. Um, and it was a course called Introduction to Sacred Texts. And that last class captured my imagination along with me beginning to read more about the faith and reading my Bible a little bit more. And that class was the catalyst that led me to, hey, I'd like to learn more about this. And that's how I ended up going to seminary. That Not is so I wanted to be a preacher or anything. I just wanted to learn more. You wanted to learn more. I wondered about that as you had. So yeah, that answers my question. You 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 weren't intending going to you weren't going to seminary intending to to be yeah. a preacher or a minister. Um, again, you know the way one professor, one teacher, whether it's high school or college, doesn't one course can have that kind of impact on us, right? Is so yes. it's incredible. It's a testament to the power of teaching and learning. I think, um, and also you know the role of contingency in history and in life. You know, what if you hadn't taken that course, right? <laughs> Who knows what kind of conversation we'd be having? Um, that is really neat. So, were you were you in conversation with your mom all this time as you're as you're having this? Um, I don't know what you want to call it, this this turn toward faith or. Uh, not so much at that point in time. I was I was beginning to frequent church more often. I was I was starting to read and study as much as I could understand at my own local church, but I wasn't engaged in in a lot of of uh, conversation. I was just kind of soaking up learning, and yeah. and by the time I finished up college, um. I, I made my way to the story is, is very um, it's very ironic to be honest with you <laughs> because I didn't I didn't necessarily pick Ashland because I knew about it I actually had heard about a school called William Tyndale College somebody associated with one of the early English uh, translations of the Bible so this was a popular Bible school in Michigan at the time, small school. It's defunct now. Okay. Um, I'd heard about that. I enrolled there, um, but didn't, you know, didn't really know what I was getting into. And on my father's desk, I walked down there one day and saw a flyer for Ashland Theological Seminary. Now, I hadn't talked to my parents about going to seminary at all, but I saw a flyer on his desk. I picked it up and I said, oh, why don't I go here? <laughs> <laughs> And that's how I ended up at Ashland. I it's, just again, flyer. <laughs> again, it's just great because, you know, again, what if the flyer hadn't been there, right? You know, right. whether it's whether it's divine, divine mm -hmm. destiny or not, it's just it's a, you know, I'd say contingency. I mean, the role of chance or accident. I just love it. Yeah. And so often, you know, I'm amazed when I talk, ask um, ask alums. Sometimes alums, you know, they, they say they knew of Gustavus, but others say, you know, I was just looking in the I got a brochure or something. And that's what you know, I decided to visit. Um, it's funny how, um, again, how we often don't have and don't have to have everything planned out and figured out at age, you know, 16, 17, or 18. Um, yeah. The, I find some students, maybe 
I, it's understandable. I know. I understand why. But you know, the, the anxiety is stress around. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I need to have a major. I need, you know, no, just you know, just learn. Right? Things will. I'm convinced things will take care of themselves. Um, so. You then decide. How about the decision to go on to for the PhD at Michigan? How did how did that decision? Was, did you just happen to see another fly or something? <laughs> <laughs> that one that one's a that one was a bit more calculated, but still had had a little bit of uh, you know chance to it as well. As I as I finished up seminary, I while I was in it. I started to get the itch to want to be a pastor. So by this point, I'm serving in ministry. Um, I'm having the opportunity. I'm very active at my church, uh, serving, preaching, doing Bible studies. So I'm enjoying taking what I'm learning at seminary and applying it in my <clears throat> local church context. So as I finish seminary, however, I take a stronger and stronger interest in the teaching aspect. Hmm. and. The dean at, at the seminary at the time, uh, Dr. Ronald Emptage, gave me an opportunity. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll take a step back. Another professor, he was an adjunct professor at the time at the seminary, uh, Dr. Ken Harris. He's now the president of Ecumenical Theological Seminary. He was he was a professor while I was at, the, at Ashland. Uh, he gave me an opportunity. And this was this was a turning point for me, Greg. He mm -hmm. gave me an opportunity to guest teach in one of his classes. Now, at the time, I either was finishing my MDiv or I just finished it. And that gave me that experience was so great where I had a chance to teach and write on the board and do all these things. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. And um and I just for the people listening, I, to give it context, the reason why that meant so much to me is because I used to have a problem speaking in front of audiences. Hmm. I struggled uh, talking in front of groups. I would get incredibly nervous. Uh, <laughs> I was relatively bad at speaking in front of at speaking in front of people. <laughs> so uh, I, when I was at Oakland, I would go into empty classrooms and I would do my study and I would sit in an empty classroom. And again, I'm starting to read the Bible and learn the Bible. And I would go to the front of this empty classroom and pick up the chalk and write all over the chalkboard Bible passages that I had memorized. And, and I would That's pretend, Greg, incredible. I, I would pretend that yeah. I was teaching a class yeah. about the Bible. That's fantastic. And that opportunity. So I, I'd all, I, it wasn't so much that I wanted to become, again, a pastor or anything. But at that point in my life, I was asking God, boy, I would love to be able to talk about the Bible and just be comfortable in front of people speaking. And that moment that I had, uh, that uh, Professor Ken Harris at the time gave me, uh, it was enormous, gave me tremendous confidence. And then the dean of the school, Dr. Ronald Emptage at Ashland at the time, he then gave me an opportunity to teach as an adjunct at a school called Spring Arbor University in Michigan. Oh, yeah. I saw that on your uh, your CV. Yeah. 
Yeah. So at that school, that was my first chance to teach my own classes at a, at an actual university. And right. again, it really, it really, you know, resonated with me. And I knew from then that's what I wanted to do. And from that point, after I finished the MDiv, my goal was how can I attain a doctorate where I can do this as a career? That's that's just a fantastic story. Um, I can't say I practiced in empty classrooms, but I did practice, you know, in my, as a graduate student in my in my apartment. Um, I can relate to. I was a wreck. I was. I was. I'm still shy. People are surprised to hear that. Students, especially. <laughs> I tell them the reason, the reason I'm, one reason I'm shouting in the classroom is because I'm terrified. You know? <laughs> um, uh, I get that made from my mom who always, she was shy. In any, in any case, uh, you're taking the words out of my mouth, that, that confidence. I had uh, somewhat similar experiences where, where a professor said, you know, why don't you want my, it was my graduate student, uh, PhD mentor said to come teach this class. And, you know, I prepared and prepared. And then I heard subsequently from a friend taking the class uh, that the professor had cited me the next day, you know, as Castor said, and I was so excited, you know, that was, oh, wow, (laughs) you know, I must have done something well. But um, it it took a while to get that confidence. And what you're also reminding us of is that most of us who teach in higher ed, we've never, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't take education courses, right? I mean, maybe you took, I didn't take any education courses. We just sort of learned for better or worse how to do it. Um, and I know there are arguments, you know, for, for and against uh, that, but it sounds like that was your, 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 your uh, history as well, right? You didn't, you didn't take teaching courses or ed courses. You I just wanted yeah, yeah. And yet, you know, we, we, we love doing it and we become good at it. Um, that's a great story. I love it. That origin story of how you became a professor. You're also, of course, a scholar. Uh, that, that is clear um, from, from, you know, just even a cursory reading of what you've been up to. And maybe we can turn to that now, your work. Um, the, um, the dissertation was titled Jewish Authors Writing in Greek how and what they learned during the Hellenistic and Roman periods. And, you know, whether you want to dig into that or tell us a little bit about um, how you're uh, how you're revising it now, but just say a little bit more about your your scholarship um, and, you know, work our way toward uh, your interest in, in magic in antiquity, which I, I grab my attention. But go ahead. How would you how would you describe what you what you work on, what you study? Uh, yeah, this uh, and let me take a, again one step back. So much sure. of what I was saying uh, that led me to an interest in in teaching to to go to the side of the academy. I I can't say enough how much the opportunities I was also given in my local church through from my oh. pastor that allowed me to. Uh, to preach however poor it was. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how good it was, but those opportunities and to teach Bible study all stoke the fires of yes. to learn more. So that yes. say, okay, I need to learn more in order to say more. Oh, that's great. Uh, and you may have just given me the title of this episode. That's fantastic. Yeah. I need to learn more to say more. That's true about all mm. of us. It should be true. But yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. So with with that, um, to the dissertation, it had for a number of years, probably while I was in starting while I was in seminary, 
as I was studying the Bible <clears throat> and reading these texts on a more frequent basis and learning all of the issues that come with uh, learning the ancient languages and translating and all of these issues with interpretation, I was finding myself, uh, Greg, in a in a space where I had to hold the tension between my belief system, what I was reading, and then what I was seeing happen in real life, in real time. Yes. So part of that, part of that tension was as I'm now reading these texts and learning about uh, the transmission of the Bible, the transmission of these texts, the diversity of beliefs during the uh, Second Temple period, which is the, the period, uh, if you will, just before the New Testament, actually going into the New Testament as well. So roughly between 537 or 536 or 515 BCE to about 70 or so CE. So roughly in that time period, I was, I was wondering what went into the composition of these texts? How did they come about? What was their actual origin? So that's, that was one question. And then the question right beside it was, the people who wrote these texts, what did they know and what did they think? So what went into, essentially, what went into the composition of these writings? And there was a book that I came across while I was doing my, my doctoral study called did the Greeks believe their myths? Oh, wow. <laughs> and that became a, that book for me was incredibly interesting. Uh, and the author's last name I know was Vain. I'm, I'm forgetting the first name. I'm, I'm writing down the title right now for me. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that the author approached that book, he was, he was looking at how the writers uh, or at least the ancient writers who were talking about these uh, classical myths with Zeus and and uh, the Olympian deities and Titan gods, etc., how they were talking about those myths and whether or not they the comments they made did it show that they really believed them or they questioned them, etc. So part of my question was as I was reading and reading these texts and particularly in Greek was did the what did the writers learn in order to compose them but then a corollary was did they actually believe the details and the miracles that were written in these texts Fasc I think that's a fascinating question <laughs> and probably a hard I would think a hard one to answer but yeah please continue Yeah so yeah so very very challenging question because from a scholarly standpoint the issue is always well, we can't go and interview the authors. And in a lot of cases, the authors are anonymous or, you know, pseudonymous or something like that. So it's difficult to get back to the authors. So what I, the way that I looked at it was, okay, I, I agree we can't get to the actual author and ask any specific questions, but we can look at the texts that are written or at least examples of texts and get a sense of, what they learned in order to write them. So there are features in these texts. Um, and for example, we could say the Gospel of Luke 
or the letter of Aristeas, or one particular writing that I use is Philo's Life of Moses, uh, Moses, and the structure of the writings, the content of the writings show up in something called um, writing exercises. So we do have writing exercises from the Greek and Roman period that give instructions for one, what you should learn and what you should put into ancient writings, or at least in this case, into Greek narratives. So essentially rules for writing. It's amazing. So I compare the rules for writing to some ancient Jewish and Christian texts to reconstruct what they learned, and then more importantly, Greg, what they thought about what they were writing. So in these handbooks, it, for example, it may say, um, when you're writing a narrative or when you're writing a history, if you're, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, uh, to make it to make it a lot easier, right. listeners. Uh, if you're writing a history, if you if if you come to a point where you need to um, say that this character said X, Y, and Z, if you were not an eyewitness, if you were not there, then it's okay to approximate what they may have said. So in other words, you could put words in their mouth based on what you think would fit that character. Even though they may not have actually said it, it's okay to add that in there. Or another example is if you are writing about a, uh, you have your star character, your protagonist, um, you don't want to just tell what they did plainly or blandly it's better to embellish it, huh. add in some miracles or something to that effect so that it's more convincing and entertaining for the reader, but more so that it's more pers per persuasive. Uh. So if you have these things added in, this is called good writing. So I do comparative work uh, between Christian and Jewish texts like that just to get a sense of, and again, I compare it and go back to the writing handbooks and comments that ancient authors made to get a sense of what did they learn and what did they think about it? Did they think this was good, bad? Did they really believe it? Or was this just part of what you were supposed to do for good reading? Right. So absolutely fantastic. I, I have a big fat grin on my face as I'm listening to this. Um, and I mean that. I just... For, for one thing, I mean, th those are issues that are still with, I mean, they're with journalists, right, or, or nonfiction writers, let's say, you know, you, you, you maybe are putting words into someone's mouth that sort of, you know, or you're writing a memoir even, right? You can't remember everything. You weren't recording it at the time. So some of it you're kind of making up and, and hoping it, it rings true. Um, the other thing, though, so what's the answer? I mean, is the assumption that because there are these handbooks, the writer's didn't believe this stuff, or, or um, what, 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 what have you concluded about that yeah. question? Yeah, if the, the conclusion, as you can imagine, as a historian, it's, it is not absolute. Yes. So, of course, to some degree, you may have persons who are writing who may have actually believed what they wrote. So that is yes. a possibility. 
but then we also have situations where you know it seems pretty clear that they are writing and following the instructions based on structure and format and what's included uh, that they are following just more so the rules and possibly didn't actually believe it. But again, did they actually believe it is very challenging to answer because there's so many other factors with it. But it was good to show uh, the types of things that they learned and what they thought about things like using myth, using magic or miracles, if they thought that was good or bad. Um, so again, I want my goal was to show what went into composing the text. That is all. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I was I, I thought that's what you would would say that um, it's not clear cut. It's not absolute. Um, the the other question I have, just listening to you talk about this work, is so uh, how does this relate? Let's let's say I, you know, I I read the Bible and I I take it all literally. I mean, what are, what are the implications for your for your work with respect to? I mean, the authors of the of the Bible and their authors, plural, right? I mean, is it so? Is, is this a question? I mean, is this essentially the question we should ask about the the, the whole Bible? Uh, you know, how much of it did did the authors believe how much of it was, you know, meant to be instructive and also entertaining. Take that question in whatever direction you'd like to take. Sure. Yeah, it's it's a it's a hot button question. It's a, it, number one. It's a fantastic question to to ask, and, and scholars do uh, discuss this and write on this, and they come at it from all kinds of perspectives. And you can imagine that uh, theology becomes a big part of this as well. So yes. even in raising these kinds of questions, you have theological position, positions, whether it's uh, inspiration of scripture or inerrancy of scripture. So you can look at uh, what's reported and say, OK, you have some that may may hold a point of faith that this is inspired in some way. So now questions of the agency of the actual human author that becomes a whole nother problem. You know, was the author right. really, you know, writing under their own compulsion or were they in some way uh, possessed uh, by some type of spirit or something in writing? Uh, so there are a lot of different layers to this. But to your to your main question, yes, th this becomes uh, vital for trying to understand the 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 production of texts in the Bible. Uh, I'll stick to the New Testament for a moment and just say something like the Gospel of Luke. At, okay. the, start, at the start of the Gospel of Luke, for example, uh, in Luke chapter one, the writer will will say um, he's actually talking to a a character that we know little about. Uh, Theophilus. So we actually have a, a text where the recipient is named. And it starts off just saying, uh, since many have undertaken to set down or write an orderly account of events that have been fulfilled among us, uh, just as they were handed on, I, it goes on from there. And verse three is the big one. I too decided after investigating everything to write an mm -hmm. orderly account for you. 
So in this case, the question becomes, well, whoever this author is, if it's Luke or, or someone else, they're choosing to write an orderly account for this figure named Theophilus. So what did this person, let's just call this person Luke, what did Luke have to learn? What was Luke's education to learn how to write this particular gospel? Right. So that's that's the layer that I try to get under. Again, I can't say anything absolutely, but I can look at the gospel of Luke and see, hey, does this gospel contain or align with some of the things that are mentioned in the writing handbooks? It's just great. I mean, first of all, the idea that there are these writing handbooks, right, in, in, in antiquity. Um, and, so one example, and one example, just, again, just for our yeah, no, one, one example of the writing handbooks, uh, one, we have something called Aristotle's Rhetoric, which, sure, is for, which is for speaking, but the rules for speaking also became the rules for writing okay. to, a, to a certain degree. So what you yeah. needed to have in your speech, some of those ideas needed to also be in your writing, whether it was a history or or whatever. And then a second one is a writing called, a uh, fancy word, progumnasmata, which simply means first exercises or preliminary exercises uh, by a, an ancient figure around the first century or so named uh, Theon. And there, that's really a, a very important one that gives a lot of the details for what a what a person should learn and know in order to write. Again, I, ju I just it, it, it's absolutely well, it's mind blowing in some ways to, to contemplate. It must be fun to do that research. I'm sure it's hard. And my goodness, how many languages do you need to know? You Greek for sure, right? Absolutely. Greek, what else? I mean. How many, in, how many? Yeah, go in ahead. This case, in this case, it's it's good to be strong. My primary language would be Greek. I'm pretty good in Latin. That's not my strongest suit. But if you can do Latin as well, um, that will help you because a number of these handbooks, uh, like by Quintilian, he's another one. And again, a lot of this overlaps between writing and speaking. Speaking, yeah. So Quintilian writes in Latin. So you would need to know uh, you need to know Greek and Latin to maneuver maneuver these texts. The other thing that's fa well, <laughs> and I I can sort of speak Spanish. My two languages in in the, for my dissertation were uh, Spanish, and then thank God they let me do statistics as the second foreign language, so or at least language. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, the the other issue would be I would think um, so even if we knew precisely the authors intentions or whether they believed it or not, there's also that question. This is true of any cultural production, right? Of, you know, how it's consumed, right? What, what do, do, do you get into that at all or not? I do. I, I get into uh, how these writings were supposed to function. So part of, you know, what, what are the authors? So essentially this is looking at the author's education and the author's perspective on these writings from what we can tell from the handbooks. But then tied to that is, how are these writings supposed to function then for the readers? And again, in part of the handbooks, they'll say, uh, again, for instance, uh, add in good deeds and good works of the protagonist, of the central character, 
And by adding in these good works, it essentially is teaching certain virtues. So I will, I suggest that based on the writing handbooks, a number of these writings, again, just using, let's say something like the Gospel of Luke, or we could even say uh, uh, Philo's Life of Moses, that these were intended as didactic teaching works okay. for readers. So that it doesn't sense. necessarily mean that it all has to be 100% true. Right. In the sense of not not true, uh, I should say historical. That's a better way of putting it. Yes, okay, yeah. All the details don't have to have happened in history, but what's being communicated through some writings, uh, it can be true in the sense that it's teaching a a good or true virtue to the reader. Right. Boy, my brain is just, um, it's sort of spinning here. For some reason, I'm thinking about, in a way, this has nothing to do with what you're talking about, but I was just thinking about how this debate among historians about, you know, is the movie reflecting history accurately or not? And my position is, you know, that's less important than if it's getting at, if it's helping us understand something about the historical truth, you know, of the event or person the um, the film is 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 depicting. I mean, it doesn't have to be an exact representation of what what happened. And after all, what you're describing too are, are I mean, they're they're works of literature, right? There there's there's an art there's an artistic aspect to it, as in film. Mm -hmm. Or I'm thinking too of the uh, the captivity narratives uh, that that Puritans wrote in the, in this in the, in the colonial period uh, mm -hmm. and other captivity narratives. They they were very, you know, you read enough of them, they're formulaic. Um, but but that doesn't mean that their impact was any less, right? Mm -hmm. Or that there aren't some there aren't some essential and even historical truths in there. Uh, even if some of it's maybe made up, right, or misremembered. Mm -hmm. uh, so, oh, wow, just so all, all fascinating. I, so, go ahead. I guess I should add this, uh, again, for those, for those listening, I should add that it's not so much um, that these writers are trying to be deceptive. Right. In a, in a lot of ways, in some That's cases, right. this is considered good writing, and these things are, are written a certain way to help the reader. Right. So again, it's not always, again, we've got different levels to this, of course, but uh, it's not always, uh, you know, some sort of deceptive. I'm writing something to to trick the people. Yes, exactly. It's a technique or... or um, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's like a good no, speaking technique. Exactly. I was just going to say teaching, speaking, right. Exactly right. So yeah, that's... No, thank you for that. That's that's very important. Um, this is not some early version of, you know, fake fake news or whatever. Um, so the, 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 the um, plan is to... You're working on revising your dissertation and then published as a book, I assume? Correct. I'm, I'm working on the, on the revisions now. That's part of what I'm doing here at Gustavus. Uh, you mentioned um, magic as well. That's another one of my, my interests, as well as ancient education, uh, and particularly ancient education, but with an emphasis on writing techniques. And connected to both of those, Greg, my, my main research interest is uh, trying to align or perhaps even bridge the gap between what is 
uh, written from a narrative standpoint. So for me, things that I read about in Jewish writings or Christian writings from antiquity and trying to understand how those writings align with what real people did. So actual people, so outside of the narratives, not to say that the people in the narratives aren't real people, but those are narrative presentations. So right. The people who lived, who were non-elites, lived in different communities, how did they think about um, what they were reading? How did they carry out the practices that were mentioned in some of these narrative works? So that's where magic comes in. So really, and I was thinking about this, reading about your work, you're, um, you know, you're, you're doing social history in a way. Exactly. Um, we're, we're focusing on non-elites and their, in their beliefs and customs. And, um, and I wondered about reading about magic. I wondered because, um, one of my, my, my PhD mentor, David Hall, who's a, has actually has a brand new book out, terrific book on Puritanism. He's just a superb scholar and teacher, um, with a focus on, uh, Puritanism, both in transatlantically. Anyway, he, um, what was the book? He wrote a book, some musical world of wonders, I think, but it was just fantastic. Fantastic, but you know the way in which you know there, there's there's Christian religion. There's also right remnants of magic or magical beliefs. Yeah. Um, is that is that kind of what you're what you're getting at? Uh, to some degree, yes. I um, part of part of what stoked my interest in in magic, and I know this is a is probably a pejorative kind of term today, but in antiquity it didn't always have a negative connotation. Um, so just understanding that magic or miracles, there are interesting ways to describe these things, but something supernatural doing something. Right. Um, so my interest came in. Obviously, I was interested in Christianity, uh, Jewish texts as well. And while I was working at the seminary, at Ashland Seminary, I was doing a Greek class. And I took a group of my Greek students up to the University of Michigan. I had somehow found out, I can't remember right now, but I found out that U of M had the largest collection of ancient papyri in the U.S. Holy cow. <laughs> of course, I didn't know that. The people I was around didn't know that either. I certainly so, didn't know it. <laughs> so the largest collection of ancient papyri is, at the, is housed in a vault at the University of Michigan. And uh, they, I made a contact up there, and the gentleman, uh, Treanos Gagos, who, uh, bless his soul, has passed on, but he, uh, he did the tour for us, and he brought out, he knew I was bringing Greek students or whatever, so he brought out these ancient papyri, and we were looking at the early, some of the earliest letters of the Apostle Paul that are housed there. So, That's of course, Myself and my students, we were all thrilled to be looking at these earliest collections of some of Paul's writings referred to as uh, P46, Papyrus 46. And so we're looking at the epistle to the uh, Hebrews and Galatians and whatnot. And so we're looking at Christian texts, but then on the table, he also has out for us uh, other writings that are not in the Bible, but then specific fragments of papyri um, that had special characters on them. 
And he called me over. He was everybody's looking around, and he said, "What do you think this says here?" And I'm looking at this papyrus fragment, and the papyrus is just the material that it's that the text is written on, precursor to paper. And I say, "Well, it, it doesn't look like Greek." And he said, uh, "What do you think it is?" And I said, "I don't know." <laughs> and he said, "It's magic." Wow. And I was a bl- and the reason I was blown away is it was a Christian it had Christian uh, allusions on it but then it had these magical symbols and, and from there I was taken Greg I said oh I've got to know about this so there were magical a- texts and amulets that's just again great because there's another example of sort of chance, right? I mean, you, know, you didn't go in thinking this is what I'm going to work, um, and yeah, that's I love that too because and it's important for students to understand and you know listeners and um, people who aren't experts, and, but things are messy, they're complicated, yes. there aren't these clear cut clear cut divisions, right? Yeah. So um, that just sounds terrific, and that moment must have been incredible. I remember just a few summers ago in. in uh, I think it was the Library of Congress, and we were, I was part of a group, a group of historians, and we were being shown, um, you know, Washington's diary, one of his diaries before he became, I thought, before he became president. That was, that was exciting, but to, to see what you're seeing and, and realize, uh, with the help of that gentleman, what you're looking at, that's incredible. And then to, and then to be able to go on and work on it. I'll, I'll add to that, um, the gentleman who, who trained me in reading, uh, ancient papyri, uh, Arthur Verhote, who's also a professor of classics at the University of Michigan, that training allowed me to see what I was learning about writing, looking at these actual um, ancient papyrus manuscripts, how regular people were writing and talking about their beliefs, and of course, the incorporation of magic. So now when I'm reading about magical things, both in the Hebrew Bible as well as the New Testament and the practice when they're calling people magicians. Now I have real world examples for something that's mentioned, even if in a cursory manner, from New Testament writings. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a eureka moment. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> feels so good to a, to a scholar. Boy, I, I can't wait to read more and talk more uh, about all of this. And as we're as we're winding down here a bit, I do want to ask you about um, what it what it's been like to be to, to grow up as an African American man and to find yourself doing this kind of work. I mean, do you do you you know is it, it, to what extent do you identify yourself as a as a black man? And if so, how how if it, if at all has that intersected? Um, you know, with your with your work directly or indirectly, and I also want to ask you um, just to, I don't know whether you were already at Gustavus when the the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police occurred, but your your reactions to that and um, subsequent events that's a lot to ask. I realize, but uh, take again take that in in whatever direction you like. Yeah. Uh, so for the first part, I was not uh, I was not really aware of how few African-Americans were in the field of biblical studies. That's probably the the broader category for the work that I do, even if mine is specifically Second Temple Judaism and Christian origins. It still fits within the realm of biblical studies. Um, 
so one, I, I did not realize that until I was working on my doc. Well, maybe so, maybe more so on my second master's. So when I was at Emory uh, University at Candler School of Theology, it started becoming clearer to me, okay, you're in a position that can really help your community. Mm. So um, I was already active at my local church and other churches as well. Uh, but I started to see it, uh, Greg, in all honesty, I started to see it as a, res- a major responsibility to take what I was learning and understand that I'm in a, not making me better than anybody, but I'm in a privileged position. So I need to be able to take this back and offer it as much as I can to people in my community. So that's how I looked at it as an African-American. Let me share as much as I can and stoke the interest of people in right. my community. Uh, not that everybody needs to do it, of course, but to to share things that I wish I had known because I knew I had a lot of questions. So I know that there are people in my community as well, my church and other churches that had similar questions. And I wanted to be able to bring uh, to them as much as I could uh, the things that have that I've been availed to. So I, I definitely see it. I saw I saw it and continue to see it as a both a privilege and a major responsibility um, with regard to. Uh, to George uh, Floyd and the the, uh, the tragic um, loss um, of his life and, and for his family and for and for the community there, um, if I were to say there was something positive that could come out of tragedy, okay, I would say from my vantage point. I saw a galvanizing of the African-American community that was incredibly inspiring. So to see so many persons start to come together and voice um, their concerns and to see the positives that have taken place since uh, that time, I have been incredibly moved. One, One example, one of my colleagues, um, she wrote a, a very um, powerful piece about a, a school, and the response of the school was to make sure that African Americans had an opportunity to attend the school tuition free, free uh, room and board, and uh, to offer space so that African-Americans could use that space to, for whether it was for meetings or whatever was needed. So what I'm, what I'm saying is, from the tragedy, I, see a, I, I continue to see a lot of positives um, that are promoting uh, growth and listening uh, to the issues that, that African-Americans are expressing. So that, that last part, being heard, is enormous. Yes, I. Um, I think. I think by all well said and powerfully said too. I think um, 
that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, it's it's profoundly tragic. I, I just, you know, still have trouble comprehending. Of course, it's one of many such incidents. Yes. Yes. Um, but but the hope is right. The the positives, the the emphasis, as you just said, on growth and the um, organize. I mean, I've never in, in my lifetime, even I think back to. Uh, not that I partic I participated in one maybe anti-war march when I was an undergraduate, I guess, but in the early seventies. But I, you know, I don't, I can't recall anything on this scale. So hopefully, some, some, as you say, some growth uh, comes from it, and some policy changes as, as part of that growth. And, and that's that's really the the big one because my own personal when I when I heard about everything when I saw it. Um, these are issues that obviously uh, we're aware of and that we see pretty much on a, on a regular basis. Uh, this one, uh, again, I, I don't want to celebrate the loss of life, you know, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm saying if there's anything positive that can come out of that kind of tragedy, uh, to see the response, and, and especially, I, I want to point this part out too, Greg, to see the response of our of young people. Yes. Young people who are lending their voice, lending their energy, uh, whether it was um, in public uh, shows or, or peaceful protests, these types of things. When I'm watching what young people are communicating and how active they are and not just sitting back saying, Oh, that was terrible! But actually, lending their energy and voice—that yes. has been inspiring to me. Just incredibly inspiring to see. And again, not just African American young people, but people, young people across the spectrum. Right. Yes. I mean, that that takes us. So probably we're going to end. Uh, that that takes us back to teaching and education and learning. I couldn't agree more. Um, we. Kate and I, out of abundance of caution regarding COVID and given our ages, we did not take part in any of the um, protests around uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death that were occurring. You know, we'd look out our window and see some of them, although mm -hmm. we did visit the memorial site eventually. But in any case, um, looking at those both from our balcony and the protests, the marches and on television, the scene, the, yeah, the young people and the, the people of so many different backgrounds. Um, it's inspiring, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's that cliche uh, about teaching keeps you young. And I, I think there's something to that. I still find a great deal of hope in in young people. Um, they're, they're a source of hope. Not all, but enough. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, the things that have been happening at Gustavus around, around racial justice issues and the aftermath of, of George Floyd's death and, and other institutions to give, give one uh, hope. So I just I couldn't I couldn't agree more with what you just said about about young people. Yeah, the um, converse the conversations that are being held um, are absolutely tremendous. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, boy, I want to keep going, but I can't. <laughs> I shouldn't. Um, this has been so much fun, so interesting, and and a, just a real pleasure to to speak with you, Rodney, and and look forward to more. Um, at some point, um, I'm, well, I'll let you know. Maybe at some point, I have you come to one of my classes, even, and talk about your your work, uh, especially if I'm teaching the historical methods class at some point. But um, you're here for this spring. Are you teaching in the spring too, or not? I am. Yes. Okay. The, the I, New Testament course again? 
correct. Yes. Okay, great. Good. Well, good luck with that. Sounds like it's been going well. Um, good luck with the revisions too. And we'll look forward to um, seeing you in person and, and, and sitting down for coffee, lunch or something together. Oh, uh, that would again. be great. And, and I would welcome, I appreciate the invitation to your class and I, and I would uh, certainly enjoy uh, sharing with you and your students. Thanks so much. All right. Take good care. Stay well. You too. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thanks, Rodney. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. <laughs>